Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, looks like today we hit on Mata Hari, the famous exotic dancer, courtesan, and spy. History holds many rumors and legends about this femme fatale. Let's try to sort through them and get at the truth about her life. Her real name was Margarita Zell, and she was born on August 7, 1876, in the Netherlands. She had three younger brothers. Her father, Adam Zell, owned a hat shop and had numerous investments in the oil industry. Remember, the later part of the 1800s were a time of rapid industrialization in parts of Europe, and it was oil that fueled that industrialization. Adam Zell became wealthy enough to give his children a luxurious early childhood, and Margarita attended exclusive private schools. Things went well for the family until 1889 when Margarita was 13. Her father's investments failed and he went bankrupt. So much for the lavish lifestyle. To make matters worse, her mother died two years later in 1891. In 1893, when Margarita was 17, her father remarried, and I guess you could say that the family fell apart. She went to live with her godfather in Leiden. Her plan was to study to become a kindergarten teacher, but when the headmaster at the school at which she was training made some very overt advances towards her, she was pulled out by her godfather. With the prospect of being a teacher out the window, she moved out of Leiden and went to live with an uncle in The Hague. So at this point, Zell, as I'll now call her, was 18 and kind of at a loss for what to do next. She decided to respond to an ad she saw in a newspaper placed by a Dutch colonial army captain named Rudolf MacLeod. He was stationed in the Dutch East Indies, think modern-day Indonesia, and was looking for a wife. She figured why not. So on July 11, 1895, the couple married in Amsterdam. The marriage seemed like a win-win situation for both parties. MacLeod got a young and beautiful bride, he was 20 years her senior, and Zell married into an upper-class officer's family, assuring her of a life of financial stability, or so it seemed. The couple lived in the Netherlands for the next two years and then moved back out to the Dutch East Indies in May of 1897. They settled in Malang, which is on the island of Java, and promptly had two children, a son, Norman John, born in 1897, and a daughter, Louise Jean, born the following year. That sounds nice, but don't fool yourself. Their marriage was hardly successful. I guess you could say that at best it was troubled, and at worst, well, downright abusive. McLeod was definitely an alcoholic and beat Zell regularly. He was quite bitter about his lack of promotion through the ranks of the officer corps, and he blamed this on her. One known incident from this time was when he attacked her with a kitchen knife. His tripping over a chair is the only thing that saved her from bodily harm, 
and allowed her time to get out the door and run to the neighbors for help. And on top of all that, McLeod also openly kept a concubine. Apparently that was socially acceptable in the Dutch East Indies at this time. For a period of time, Zell left McLeod and moved in with another Dutch officer. During this temporary separation, she took up studying Indonesian culture and joined a local dance company. From correspondence with her family back in the Netherlands, we know that it was at this time she chose the name Matahari for a stage name. Apparently, it means son in the local Malay language. McLeod urged her to come back to him, promising to be a change man. She relented and moved back in, but of course, his behavior didn't change. To try to cope with this, she continued to immerse herself in her dance and cultural studies. Yeah, things sound pretty difficult for her, but wait, they get worse. In 1899, the couple's two children fell violently ill. There's some matter of debate as to what ailed the children. Some sources say they both had congenital syphilis inherited from Zell. Other sources, and the family themselves, claim they were poisoned by an irate servant. Whatever the cause, though, Norman ended up dying, but Louise Jean survived. What a terrible blow for the family. They ended up moving back to the Netherlands shortly after this. Of course, being back in the Netherlands improved nothing, and the couple soon separated, and divorce proceedings were started. Zell had custody of Louise Jean, but struggled because McLeod refused to provide any financial support. This put Zell in a difficult position. She could live in poverty and struggle to raise her child, or she could move to France to try to build some kind of life. After careful consideration, she made the hard choice of moving to France in 1903. She left Louise Jean with her soon-to-be ex-husband. Her thinking was that, even though he had been a horrible husband, he had also been quite a good father and would certainly be able to provide for their daughter. Now that she was in Paris, Zell found work as a horse rider in a circus, billing herself as Lady MacLeod. Needless to say, that the McLeod family back in the Netherlands did not approve of the family name being used in such a way. To further try to make ends meet, she also worked as an artist's model. In 1904, Zell got a job with a theater company, but still struggled financially. In a letter to McLeod's cousin, who was acting as a sort of intermediary between her and McLeod, she told him that she had taken to sleeping with men for pay. She went on to say that she wasn't bad at heart, but was only doing it out of poverty. Gee, perhaps not the best thing to admit to while being involved in a divorce case. At least she was being honest. As 1904 rolled into 1905, Zell began to hone her craft as an exotic dancer. This was a time when modern dance in Europe looked to the Far East for inspiration, and she used her extensive knowledge of the Indonesian culture to build a colorful backstory. Under her stage name of Matahari, she pretended to be a Javanese princess of priestly Hindu birth, who had been trained in the art of sacred Indian dance her whole life. Matahari's act debuted on March 13, 1905, and became an overnight sensation. She was described as having a carefree, provocative style, 
and openly flaunted her body in exotic and revealing costumes. Of course, the highlight of her act was when the pieces of her exotic costume were shed one by one until all she had on was a jeweled breastplate, some bracelets on her arms, and a fancy headpiece. It seems she never appeared completely topless because she was a bit self-conscious about her assets in that department. As for exposing everything from the waist down, yeah, she had no problem with that. So as I said, Matahari became the talk of Paris. She also became the longtime mistress of millionaire industrialist Emile Guimet. She performed, gave interviews, and posed for a number of photographs in which she was usually naked, or nearly so. By the way, McLeod's lawyer got a hold of a bunch of these photos and used them to further strengthen McLeod's demands in the divorce that he get full custody of Louise Jean, which he was granted when the divorce was finalized in 1906. Be that as it may, Zell started to become very successful. Audiences totally bought her Matahari persona and genuinely believed she was a princess from the Far East. Remember, at this time, most people in Europe, even in such an enlightened city as Paris, had no clue how things actually were in East Asia. In essence, a lot of her success was due to the fact that she was able to take erotic dance and turn it into an art form, giving it respectability that it had previously lacked. Yeah, I've noticed that calling something art can let you get away with a lot of things. <laughs> anyway, critics and audiences across Europe loved her. By around 1910, a host of similar acts had sprung up in Paris and elsewhere. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but when the imitators start to surpass the one they're imitating, then there's trouble. The critics in the 19-teens were less gracious towards Zell, talking less about her artistic merit and more about her cheap exhibitionism. She continued to perform, though, and the mystique of Matahari still drew crowds, but not for much longer. After 1912, Zell's career went downhill. Remember, when she started performing in 1905, she was already 29, quite a late age to start as a dancer. As the years went by, she got older, a bit heavier, and as I said, she was surpassed by many younger dancers who had better dancing skills and better looks. Her last public performance took place on March 13, 1915. But hey, don't feel too bad for Zell, because by the time her dance career came to an end, she was already quite a successful courtesan. And when I say courtesan, I'm using the modern meaning of the word. A prostitute who caters to wealthy or upper-class clients. In other words, she was a high-price hooker. She's known to have had numerous relations with politicians, high-ranking military officers, and influential businessmen in a number of European countries. I guess you could say she got around, both literally and figuratively. When World War I started in 1914, the Netherlands stayed neutral. And since Zell was a Dutch citizen, she could cross international borders as she wished, as long as she stayed away from the fighting. The fact that she did continue to travel during the war began to attract some negative attention. But in the spring of 1916, 
Zell seemed to curtail her travels. This was because she got into a very intense relationship with a Russian captain named Vadim Maslov. He was a pilot serving with the French, and she called him the love of her life. Now, how in the world did a Russian pilot end up serving in France? Well, hey, here's a little-known fun fact for you World War I fans out there. In the spring of 1916, Russia sent a 50,000-man Russian expeditionary force to France to help fight on the Western Front. And Maslov was part of that. That summer, Maslov's plane was shot down in a dogfight. He was severely wounded, including being blinded in one eye. Zell desperately wanted to visit him while he recovered, but the military hospital he was in was near the front lines. As the citizen of a neutral country, traveling there was a big-time no-no. Zell talked to agents from French military intelligence, and they had a proposition for her. Sure, she could go visit her wounded lover, if she agreed to spy for France. Zell agreed, and Captain George Ledeau was assigned as her contact. Now, why would French military intelligence ask her to do this? Well, before the war, she had performed several times as Matahari for Germany's Crown Prince Wilhelm, the eldest son and heir to Kaiser Wilhelm II. The French thought that if she were able to seduce him, he might be a goldmine of German military secrets. What the French didn't realize was that although the Crown Prince was supposed to be the commander of both the German Fifth Army and Army Group Crown Prince, he really didn't make any military decisions. Having him in command of these groups was nothing more than government propaganda to try to portray the heir to the throne as a great warrior. In reality, he was a hard-partying womanizer. In late 1916, Zell went to Madrid and had a meeting with the German military attaché, Major Arnold Kale, and asked him to set up a meeting with the Crown Prince. She even made the offer of selling French secrets to Germany in exchange for money. So wait, was she selling France out? We're not sure. Maybe she did say it out of greed, or maybe she said it so the Germans wouldn't suspect that she might be a French spy. Who knows? What we do know is that while she didn't get to see the crown prince, she and Kale became lovers. With rumors creating doubts about her loyalty, French military intelligence decided to test Zell in December 1916. She was intentionally allowed to get her hands on a list of Belgian agents suspected of working for Germany including one who was a double agent. Shortly after getting this list, she returned to Madrid, and a few weeks after that, the suspected double agent was arrested and executed by the Germans. For the French, this was proof that she was feeding information to the Germans, because she was the only person who had that list of names. To make matters worse for Zell, Major Kale's superior... General Walter Nikolai, who was the Army Chief Intelligence Officer, was getting annoyed with the intel Kale was getting from Zell. All she ever provided was Paris gossip about the sex lives of French politicians and generals. 
Half the info could as easily have been found in newspaper gossip columns. General Nikolai told Kale that it was maybe time to terminate her employment with the Germans. In January 1917, Major Kale made his move to do just that with a plan that was brilliantly subtle. He sent a radio message to Berlin talking about the excellent intelligence he had been gathering with the help of a spy, codenamed H-21. While Kale didn't name names, his description made it painfully obvious as to who he was talking about. French military intelligence intercepted and decoded this message, and immediately knew H-21 had to be Matahari. They made plans to arrest her. This is what Kale had intended to happen all along. To ensure this, he purposely sent his message in a code that the Germans knew the French had already broken, guaranteeing they'd be able to read it. Pretty sneaky. Zell was arrested in a Paris hotel on February 13, 1917. A trial was set for July 24th, with the charges of being a German spy and causing the deaths of at least 50,000 French soldiers. The problem was that neither the French nor their British allies had any definite evidence against her. Before her trial, she was vigorously interrogated by Captain Pierre Beauchardin, who would also be the lead prosecutor. He established that her backstory as Matahari was a complete falsehood, and that she was actually a Dutch citizen. Of course, that really wasn't too difficult to establish but Beauchardin would use this against her at trial as evidence of a dishonest character. He also got her to admit to accepting 20,000 francs from a former German lover as reimbursement for personal belongings taken from her by German authorities. Beauchardin claimed this money was really payment for spying. And let's not forget about her military intelligence contact, Captain Ledeau. He went through intelligence files and actually tampered with evidence to help build a damning case against her. Now before we get into her actual trial, we need to understand the situation in France by July of 1917. France was badly shaken from the army mutinies that took place from late April to June following the failure of the Neville Offensive. On top of this, there was a wave of labor strikes in the war-weary nation, and many wondered if France was on the verge of collapse. A new government under George Clemenceau came to power in July, shortly before Zell's trial was to start. Clemenceau and his boys were completely committed to winning the war, and having a high-profile spy case set to go to trial played right into their hands. Here was a perfect scapegoat on which to blame all of France's problems. So hence, Zell's trial received incredible publicity in the press. International lawyer Edward Clunet served as Zell's defense counsel, but he faced a nearly impossible task. He was denied permission to cross-examine witnesses for the prosecution or to examine his own defense witnesses directly. Beauchardin tore Zell's character apart portraying her as the evil temptress who used her body to manipulate men. He called her the type of woman who was born to be a spy. 
Zell tried to defend herself, saying that she loved France, her adopted homeland, and that she supported the Allied cause in the war. One of her most famous quotes from the trial was when she said, A harlot, yes, but a traitoress, never. She had hoped that her lover Maslov would testify in her defense. Remember him? The guy over whom this whole spying business started in the first place? Yeah, he declined to testify. It seems his wounds had left him rather bitter, and his message to her was that he didn't care if she was convicted or not. Reports say she actually fainted when she learned he had abandoned her. So although Zell never admitted to being a German spy, and although the prosecution had no solid evidence on which to convict her, she was found guilty anyway and sentenced to death. She was executed by firing squad in the early hours of October 15, 1917. Legend says that she blew a kiss to the firing squad, but this is totally false. Her hands were not bound, but she kept them calmly at her sides. She did refuse a blindfold, and it was said she stared at her executioners right up to the last. Did Matahari receive justice at her trial? Did she deserve her punishment, or was she the convenient scapegoat France needed at that time? It's interesting to note that in 2017, 100 years after her trial and execution, the French army declassified over 1,200 pages of documents pertaining to her case. This new information further points toward her being made a scapegoat, and in fact, there are some groups out there calling for her exoneration. But talking about that, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode, of course, please tell your friends and check out some of the other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again next week.